0: Let's talk about it after. Just read it, okay? I was liberating Ukraine. Walked through its Jewish villages. Yiddish, their language, long since a ruin, has died out and for three years has been ancient. No, it didn't die out. It was cut out and burnt out. It seems they were too sharp-tongued. Everyone was killed and no one survived. Only their dawns and dusks in their verses, some sweet, some bitter some burning, blazing with bitterness, in the past perhaps too thorny, in the present real. Described by Markish and Hofstein, thoroughly sought for by Bergelson, this world, which even by Einstein is incapable of being reattached to life. But neither like a seed, nor like chaff, but like black ash it is scattered, so that any word would raise a hundred times more there where the ruins stood gaping. For around three years now, how ancient, how antique. That language, like a person, was killed. For around three years, we've been poking fingers into books, into the alphabet, like cuneiform, forgotten.
1: Who's the translator on that?
0: The little lady I know. (laughs) Actually, she's a great scholar. (laughs) Great scholar of
1: Jewish-Russian...
0: Poetry. Her name is uh what was
1: it? Capazalo, I think. So yeah, something Olivia? Yeah. No, that's actually really nice. I think and it's like super relevant to the conversation we're about to have, which is yeah, that's so, cool. That's cool yeah. that like you actually did something that is <laughs> where is that sentence going? That sentence is going like you actually did something with your thesis that like That didn't exist already. Like you made something new that might actually be useful outside of the like small little context of I'm making a thesis and I'm a senior. Oh, that's nice. Okay, so yeah, just can you just give us like a two sentence explanation of who this person is?
0: Slutsky's deal is that he wrote a lot about his Jewishness and Jewishness was a topic linguistically and thematically in a lot of his work that wasn't published until after his death and the thing about him is that he served in the war and then afterwards wrote some poems about the war that weren't particularly jewish related and he's pretty much known for that he's what's called a war poet so he's known for his sort of like patriotic poems that he wrote at that time Even though he continued to write until his death in the eighties. So people in Russia also like don't know him. Like if I if I'm like, yeah, I wrote my thesis on this guy named Slutsky, they're like, Who is that? Like he's not one of the more famous he's definitely not like a mainstream famous poet. I don't know. I really like how he uses just the example in the second line, he says, walk through its Jewish villages. And in Russian he uses this word for village that is specifically like a russian word to mean like a countryside village and he doesn't use the word for shtetl which is what he's talking about okay and he just he, but it, it's interesting because he uses an
1: adjective like jewish villages rather than just using the one word because was it at that time that shtetl carried a lot of negative connotations
0: uh no i think it's not like a censorship issue because i don't think like i was trying to figure out when this was published but i don't think he's like i don't think that was the reasoning i think that it was actually like this an articulation of an absence like the language is already being erased and it's being russified
1: is a yiddish word
0: yeah well there is a russian word for it but i think that he's like emphasizing its russification by using using a russian word no there's a russian word for like it's which is weird because means little spot doesn't like it's not the exact yiddish word just like little spot little place The concept of shtetl is really interesting, though, also because, like, the term very much fits with this theme of, like, absence and kind of definition through through negation. Because I remember when I was researching, like, how to talk about the shtetl in Eastern Europe, it's, like, they're really hard to define, and it can be sort of, like, not just—it can be, like, in a way, like, a metaphysical place— um, especially because a lot of them weren't recorded, or where they are like a lot of them are, exist only in sort of people's memory. Trying to define it as either a physical space or a metaphysical status um, relies on definition by negation, by saying it's something between something urban and rural, something run by townspeople and run by peasants, something approved and registered, but also lacking. Yeah, and I think like Slutsky's way of naming it is a. Is participating in that. Okay, bye, Slutsky. Bye, Sluts.
1: Love you. Bye, this is the meat of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> Wait, have you ever, have you ever caught your, have you ever caught your profile
2: reflection in the mirror? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <my> yeah. <laughs> like <a> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is gonna be disaster. Yeah. Yeah. This shit feels like I won't ever make it hold. Sh oh. traffic's tracked up, I got to get off of this road. Oh. Fo on the gas, I swear to God coming my soot on the gas, I
1: guess I So I set up a number that people can call into and Either ask us questions or like if you just have thoughts about anything Russia related. So if you're listening to this and you're the type of person that likes to call into things, the number is 347-292-7126. 347-292-7126. And we'll play it on the show and we'll try to address the questions, etc. I think you really enjoyed reading the number just now.
0: Didn't it, did it, you feel really like, like a morning edition or something?
1: Call us. We're talking about it now. Call us right now again, folks, okay? This is She's in Russia. I'm Smith, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm Lily,
0: and I live in St. Petersburg, Russia. I did it. I did it fast, and I did it quick. Quick and dirty. <laughs>
1: quick and dirty. Just so I like it. All right, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about Masha Gessen's book, Where the Jews Aren't, subtitled The Sad and Absurd Story of Birobidzhan." russia's jewish autonomous region
0: oh oh yeah
1: i have all these clips of her talking about it and rather than us just like summarizing the book i kind of just want to like play one of the clips explaining what birebizhan is does that seem like a good idea can you play one for me yeah okay okay Okay. all right masha hit me so so yeah masha's gonna teach us about birebizhan
2: after the revolution, there there was this idea of equal autonomy for every nation. Now, there was an issue with the Jews, they didn't have territory. They had language, they had culture, they had customs, but they didn't have territory. So, in order to be like other nations, they needed to have their own territory. So then, the idea of sending the Jews to Birobidzhan, well, there was no Birobidzhan yet. There was this area uh, in the far, far east of Russia uh, on the border of Russia with contested Manchuria, that was very sparsely populated. Uh, the Soviet Union worried that that uh, that border needed to be shored up. There were a few million Jews who could be used to shore it up. So, so, um, so why not? So, a, an expedition of uh, a reconnaissance mission basically was sent to Berabijan to uh, or to that area uh, uh, to see what could be done there, and the mission came back with a report that said, mm, not a good idea. Basically, the land is uninhabitable. Cultivating the land is made especially difficult by, uh, the, uh, by insects, which are so evil, as the report called them, that, uh, uh, that they make life impossible for both cattle and man. It also said there, 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 there were some people living there. There were basically two groups living there. There were uh, some ethnic Koreans. Uh, who'd been there for a couple of centuries, and there were Cossacks who'd been there for a little less than a century, who'd been given land there, um, in a tsarist effort, again to shore up this this, this problematic border region. Uh, so you know the the sort of Vidubian versus Palestine argument at this point boils down to: Do the Jews go live in the desert among the Arabs, or do they go live in the swamp among the Cossacks? And. Uh, uh, So the the reconnaissance mission said, if you're going to do it at all, there has to be infrastructure first and people second. That recommendation was not accepted, and people started arriving there in 1928, uh, 1929, so about a year after this mission was there. The people who went, for the most part, were desperate, because what had happened to Jews, uh, you know, on the one hand, Jews had benefited greatly from the Bolshevik Revolution, because restrictions uh, that had been uh, placed on Jews in terms of where they could live, whether they could get higher education, what kind of jobs they could hold, all those restrictions had been lifted. But Jews had also been horribly hurt economically, and especially the Jews of the Pale of Settlement, the the vast area uh, in in Ukraine and Belarus, uh, where Jews had been required to live, most Jews had been required to live for the preceding um, century and a half, they had, uh, those Jews were not allowed to work the land. They could only be tra- tradesmen, right? So there were cobblers, there were furs, uh, there are other kinds of small tradesmen, but private trade was outlawed. And uh, that was an economic catastrophe for several million Jews uh, who found themselves living in the Soviet Union with you know, nominal full civil rights, but never having, for the most part, been, been wealthy people, becoming just catastrophically impoverished. So for a lot of them, a one-way ticket to Birebidjan gave them hope that at least they will be able to survive. Most years, about half the new settlers in somewhere or another managed to run away. That's a huge number because, of course, they didn't have freedom of movement. You were not just allowed to buy a ticket and go anywhere you wanted in the Soviet Union. Everything required sort of going through major hurdles. At the same time, um, for a small group of Jewish intellectuals, Birbiden was everything that they had dreamed of. It had Yiddish language publishing. It had Yiddish language schools. It uh, it was going to ha- to hold a huge Yiddish language conference, and it was on its way to becoming a full fledged uh, nas- uh, autonomous national republic, right? which uh, which is a little bit different from what it is now, which is a, uh, a Jewish autonomous region, right? But it was supposed to be a Jewish autonomous republic with full rights. Under the Soviet Constitution, which was a bogus constitution, but who knew? Uh, and uh, uh, it still, you know, it sounded grand. But that didn't last very long because uh, by 1935, the first purges uh, of uh, in Berabadjan began. The entire party elite of Berabadjan was decimated. Uh, the Yid- the Big Yiddish conference that was planned was cancelled. Most of the Yiddish language education was uh, was abolished. And the plans for becoming a full-fledged uh, autonomous republic were scrapped, and that was pretty much the end of, of that stage of development for Birobidzhan. There were some thousands of Jews living there. There were, you know, there was sort of Jewish Yiddish nomenclature. There were uh, collective farms with Yiddish, na- uh, Yiddish names, but for the most part, it sort of stopped. Right, this idea was halted, and Birobidzhan was reduced, like most of the country, well, all of the country, really, during the the years of the Great Terror, which began in 1937. It it was reduced to to survival, right? Nobody was thinking about what the glorious future of this Yiddish-speaking region was going to be.
0: Well, I think think an important context, um, when we're talking about moving people, here and there, in the Soviet Union. That was like a phenomenon that was taking place on a mass scale across ethnicities. So you're right about this like this uh, ideology in place in the beginning, definitely in the early uh, idealistic years of the Soviet Union. Each specific nationality or ethnicity <clears throat> kind of told, like, you can continue to preserve all of your traditions and do everything you want to do, but you will learn... You will like take in Soviet ideology via your your nationalistic uh, traditions and language and stuff. Does that does that kind of make sense? Like, like for example, we're gonna t- let's take Yiddish is going to be the language of the Jews in the Soviet Union officially, and we're gonna teach Soviet ideology in Yiddish.
1: Yeah. So using people's like existing cultures and identities as a vehicle for. Soviet ideology.
0: Yeah, that's the simplified way that you can use the phrase that to explain it. The phrase um, nationalist in form, socialist in content. That's how you can right. remember. Okay. The, the thing is that that's an early early Soviet ideology and phenomenon, and that gets kind of like destroyed, and there's like a crackdown on that just after the war, before Stalin's death, and actually during the terror. So so it's short lived <laughs> little little moment uh yeah because actually starts with the terror that 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 like happy time where everyone can just do you know like do what they were doing before but that's also that that's also false because like what i started out by saying it's not quite true that people were just left where they were and then like the jews removed somewhere else i say okay so people People were shipped around. Yeah, the G- Soviet Union. The whole history of the Soviet Union, well, basically throughout, is characterized by like people moving around and people being forced to move from different places. It could be something like you get a you get a job in a certain place and you're kind of like forced to go there. But then there are like much more violent examples, like the Tartar people d- being dep- being forcibly deported from Crimea. Okay. Yeah. So so that's something that that the the Jewish Movement to or like Jews move, being being kind of like encouraged to move to this horrible little place Biedobijan, it, it it exists in this larger context of people moving around, but I guess you can you can still say that Biedobijan is like particularly shitty a, a place.
1: Well, it's particularly shitty a place, and there has to be something going on that makes the Jewish question different from like the Tartar question. Tartar is that how it's pronounced? Tatar? tartar, tartar. It's a question, different than that question, right? Like there's something about Jews having been in diaspora and migrating for like centuries upon centuries. I thought that make somehow makes this different in some way. Like I think so she one of the, the people she talks about in the book is is it dubno dubno? Is it him that talks about this Dubnov. Dubnov. Is is it him that who has this like theory of Jewish autonomy yeah 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 so just like his whole idea that he's he's basically saying like jews are an advanced nationality because they've built a nation in diaspora like linking jews across geographical planes, um and that like the idea of something like birebidjan or israel is and he was writing obviously before like israel got so popular for the jews but basically saying like those ideas are fantastical and instead we need to focus on just building I guess like camaraderie between Jews who are already existing in the diaspora the other thing he said which like Masha notes in the same speech that I just took a clip from but he's he's talking both about how like Jews are an advanced nationality because they've built a nation in diaspora and also that they're advanced because something about the nature of diaspora the nature of the Jewish people and culture itself, completely separates itself from violence. I guess the idea that if you're in diaspora, you're not protecting some physical space, and therefore you're a non-violent nation. And he was obviously taking a lot of pride in that. And Masha talks about just like reading that and thinking, she doesn't say this explicitly, but she does say like, reading that in current day, like almost makes me cry. Just like the fact that this was at some point something that the Jews took pride in. And now that existing thing has been eradicated by the existence of Israel. And that is sad. Like, I don't know, I don't know how like, realistic this idea of autonomism is. And if it is actually a true thing, like is a nation in diaspora a nation at all, like that seems like maybe not true. Like there is just kind of a lot of identity you gain from being around a certain set of people and existing in that physical space and sort of arguing that Jews have transcended in some way because they're able to just like mentally exist in a nation state that doesn't exist physically is probably not actually that true. Well, I don't know. Maybe you wouldn't call it a nation state. OK, not a nation state, but in, but he does call it a nationality. Yeah. A pe- well, people. I mean, I'm not arguing that that Jews don't feel a connection to other Jews across the world. Obviously, that that would be the case. And that exists across like religions and cultures that you would feel identity with people even if they live elsewhere. But just this idea that, oh, a nation can exist in diaspora. I just don't know if I don't know. Maybe. I I don't know. It's kind of confusing because he's having this like theory of a nation before the existence, like something like the Internet, whereas like now you could sort of be like, yeah, yeah, the Internet. We all know like no borders. Everybody talks to each other. It does make sense if you have like a virtual nation. But he was talking about the idea of a virtual nation long before any of that sort of technology existed to facilitate it.
0: Yeah. And he's also in a context in which he's also writing in a context in which... Physical borders and, like, you know, the nationality that's shown on your passport or whatever are changing. Like, really, it's they're really fluid. Um, right. And in, in not necessarily, like, in a cool internet way <laughs> at all. He was born in a shtetl, I think, in, 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 Belarusian, in the Belarusian sector of the Pale. Maybe just a little bit about the Pale of Settlement. Pale of Settlement, you, you mentioned it's like the lands bordering the western side of Russia that include. Ukraine, what else is there, Belarus, and parts of Poland. But again, like the borders, I don't know, confusing. That was established under Catherine the Great. Good old Catherine. Katie. Not that she was the only one who wanted to do that, but Jewish merchants are banished to a cert- to live in a certain area, um, that area that we just described. Called the Pale of Settlement. Called the Pale of Settlement, and like have... Yeah, reduced rights, um, and and also are only allowed to reside in like certain areas within that. So it's it's yeah, it's it's like a number of of kind of difficult to describe, especially difficult to describe now geographically because those borders have changed. So when I say like Poland and like Lithuanian, uh, Be- Belarus and and stuff, it's like well, it's not exactly the same as it was then.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess that's a good point that you you're like referencing that the Masha Gessen talks about how it's hard to define where somebody lived because the borders are changing all the time. And it sort of makes sense then that, yeah, this person that we're talking about, Simon Dubnov, who was this Jewish historian, would have advocated for this idea of, like, a virtual nation because he was experiencing extremely rapid state change. And so it, like, doesn't make sense to depend on a physical place.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm pretty sure the place that he was born, the shtetl, is... Mistislav. I'm pretty sure that's the one that Gessen says, like, you wouldn't know the name if he hadn't been born there. Yeah,
1: <laughs> she she does. In a shtetl in what is now Belarus.
0: Before the Soviet Revolution, there are, you know, cities and centers of, of Jewish culture in that area where people can be um, financially successful within that world, like, only speaking Yiddish, for example. Again, there's, like, this also interesting sort of like divide between the more religious language hebrew and like the more colloquial almost like street language of yiddish but it's but it's yiddish that's picked in the soviet union because it's more like detached from religion
1: yeah that's that's something we should definitely get into is like the religious aspect of soviet judaism but but i guess real quick i kind of just want to run through the structure of this book so that people have an idea Gessen is writing about this jewish autonomous region bierbizan but she actually spends a lot of time um kind of talking about the jewish movement outside and around bierbizan and specifically these like two main characters which is simon dubnov who we've been talking to who's this historian and then uh what's his first name who bergelson uh D- D- dovid david but it's really dovid, dovid. oh right okay so do-, do dovid bergelson um who's who's a poet and i guess he, maybe like journalist and she follows these two people because i i guess i don't know why she chooses to follow these two people i mean bergelson because he's is that the right emphasis emphasis bergelson
0: Bergelson I heard her say it Bergelson and Bergelson so I don't know
1: okay Bergelson him because he's he actually is paid by the Soviet Union to go to Birobidzhan and like write propaganda about why it's so great but he never actually lives there himself um so that's part of the reason why why Gessen is writing about him but the other part is that she's using these two men as like this example of Jewish flight and like this idea that Jews in particular have this particularly good instinct for when to flee an area. So the those those two things combined, then with just them both kind of being, although like slightly um apart generationally, like a uh, Dubnov is is a little bit older being kind of at these like epicenters of Jewish Yiddish culture, whether it be in Moscow or in Ukraine or in Berlin uh, and just kind of using them to map Jewish movement and fear during like the pogroms up to World War II and then I guess in there also the purges and using them to kind of, I don't know, like understand Jewish history and like theory around that time. And I think it works. Like, I feel like maybe she's, like, over... I have no way of knowing this, but maybe she's, like, overloading them as as representations of these things. But I feel like the book is pretty short. You know, it's, like, 150 pages, and I feel like I had, at the end of it, a good sense of, like, this Jewish-Soviet mentality that I definitely didn't have before.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're, like... I think she picked them because they they have a potentially like unstable relationship with the soviet union so it wasn't th- there was there was a tra- transition from like the beginning of bergelson's career when he initially was writing like anti-soviet stuff right right to him becoming like one of the sort of to him sort of being like taken in by Shield. the soviet union and becoming one of the like heads of uh, jewish committee like jewish section of the soviet government The,
1: the other the other interesting thing that she mentions that i didn't realize was that during world war ii uh soviet jews were actually like really pivotal in garnering american support for for the war not only in like um sentiment i guess but also like actual money so like soviet jews would go to america and like fundraise basically and then bring the money back to the soviet union and then then, of course after the war they were accused of being traitors because they had been like fraternizing with american
0: yeah this is the the group of people known as the the jewish anti-fascist committee yeah during the war the jewish anti-fascist committee they was just this group of i guess like thought
1: leaders (laughs) public intellectuals public intellectuals i'm I'm, sorry i'm sort of using that phrase as a slur but
0: what does that mean
1: what that it's i'm using as a slur that i'm what does public intellectual mean yeah why is it bad oh i mm, i it's not necessarily bad i just think that at the current time there are a lot of people who are like public pop intellectuals and so it's starting to have like sort of a soured connotation oh, okay
0: what let's just call them like i don't know cultural figures or something because there, there's multiple types of people in in this committee but yeah they they were basically making a public public appeals during the war to not only the u.s but the world um jews around the world to to support the soviet war effort and that's like a really amazing part because, like, remember in the book, she she talks she she uh, prints part of a speech that 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 Bergelson wrote, I believe, or is it Dubnov?
1: Ah, do you remember? No, I don't think Dubnov. I don't think really did the America thing that much.
0: Okay, well, it's like a letter explicitly talking about Nazis targeting Jews, like the the oh, the, the Final yeah. sl- Solution. Is that what it's called? The Final.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And by and by like explicitly explicitly like he's graphic in it.
0: Yeah, he's graphic, but it's like really important that he's talking about this fact that like Nazi policy is to exterminate the European Jewish population. And that at the time, like people later would say was unknown, quote unquote, but it wasn't
1: right. Right. Yeah, there is that myth like where the I mean, maybe it's not a myth, but that like American soldiers went into camps and were like really stricken and didn't know that that was happening. I mean, yeah,
0: but it's even more important for the trials of the of the officers of the Nazi officers that they quote unquote might not have known.
1: Oh, you mean the Nazi officers might not have known or that the Amer- America didn't know. That everyone wouldn't know, but she points to like the like trials
0: later, like the Nuremberg trials. Uh, remind me of what she says there. Like people, I'm pretty sure when like all the main people, like Goebbels and all the like people who were put on trial after th- after the war, like there was some debate there about like what they knew, like the extent of their knowledge. uh You know, like to what extent were they just following orders, etc. I just remember her mentioning that, and she's like, "But it, but it really isn't. A, it's not a debate. It's, it's, you know, these are things that that Hitler was saying publicly in speeches." the time right so it's sort of a weird yeah it's sort of mythical um but but anyway this this jewish anti-fascist committee that ha, that forms during the war during the war and includes people like very famous journalist Ilya ehrenberg who is sort of like a friend of slutsky's you know, count counterpart peer <laughs> more famous than slutsky uh, yeah the all those people who are involved in the jewish anti-fascist committee end up being um accused of nationalism that is harmful to the soviet project accused by the soviet union
1: right after having raised a lot of money and support for the soviet war effort yeah and that was part of stalin's like sort of paranoia
0: against what he called like rootless cosmopolitans like (laughs) these like especially the jews as being a group of people who who are like yeah who are rootless and who have like connections to foreign agents and it, it it has that sort of, yeah, so it has this very strange, horrible irony kind of, yeah, because, like, these people specifically formed a group in order to support the Soviet Union during the war. Uh, and then the Soviet government turns on them in the, in the late 40s, just before Stalin dies. What culminates is in 1948, basically, like, a murder of a bunch of people. But, like, yeah, a bunch of those people are executed uh, on what's known as the Night of the Murdered Poets. They were all arrested in 48, but the actual night was, the night of the execution was 1952. Ah, right, it was, it was, um, execution of 13 Soviet Jews on August 12th, 1952. Yeah, and then August 12th is important because that was, I think, Dubnov's birthday.
1: But Dubnov dies in, in Lat, is he in Lithuania or Latvia? I forget. Okay, then it's, sorry, sorry, I keep confusing them. Bergelson's birthday. Yeah, okay, so for people listening, the way that I've been keeping them separate in my mind is Dubnov is a little bit older. He's a historian, and he dies as like a very old man. I think that he's part of this, I don't know what they were called, but like these types of killings that happened to Jews during World War II that weren't camp related, where they would just take large groups of people out into the woods and shoot them. And this happened to him in, Lith- where did he, where was he living? Latvia? Lithuania? Which one? Latvia, yeah, Riga. Latvia, okay. Um, oh, right. Okay, so this happens to him. And then Burgelson is killed when he's younger, maybe, maybe a little bit younger, in the 50s. And I think he's in like, I think he's in his 60s when he gets killed. And he's killed by Stalin.
0: It's funny that you said sort of the way to remember the difference between Dubnov and and uh, was like in the end, kind of like how they died. Right. Obviously, no, they like they had different lives and everything, and yeah, they're different types of writers. <laughs> they have these really actually intensely representative deaths that I just sort of realize, or like symbolic, because yeah, Dubnov, this this historian, he's living in Riga, in this, he he's thinking like he's been sort of moving around and he's thinking, like, I'm going to be in Riga because I think I'm going to be safe here. Like, I'm not in Berlin anymore where the Nazis are. And he, he like, sensed that that was going to be a dangerous place kind of, like, before even it was, yeah, people really knew. He's not in Nazi Germany. He's not in the Soviet Union. where He also doesn't feel sort of safe. And he's like, I'm just in a peaceful little country. Like, just leave me alone. And he ends up being shot in 1941 so during the war by nazis so it turns out it was not a safe place but um so his death you you touched on this but it is actually really important i think to to note that like his death um being shot either while walking uh, well he was actually shot while walking but he was they were being walked to a uh, like a sort of like remote forest what would happen in these kind of deaths is that like you people would be rounded up um, often like everyone from a village or something or like a whole group of people and marched out into a forest to a ravine or like a pit and then shot over it so that they fall into the pit and it's a really important paradigm to note basically in when we're talking about like the experience of jews during the war especially because this type of death in this like big swath of land going all the way up from poland down like through what we were talking about the pale of settlement so the lands that border russia on the west again like belarus ukraine and it's a paradigm that like western historians don't focus on as much as they focus on the camps right because yeah when when we sort of think of the holocaust in very basic terms we think of what's the camp we think of Auschwitz and like Auschwitz represents a certain type of death and these pits and these nameless mm, places in the forest represent another kind where like millions of people were killed but it's sort of a less talked about phenomenon yeah
1: that that is true and that is something I've thought about I think and this is like kind of a gross way of putting it I guess but like there's something about the camps and the showers and the fact that there were like children living in these camps and then sometimes they would play soccer with the guards like all those like little anecdotes that's more compelling and simultaneously repugnant than people being shot in the forest I think because the this idea that camps were built people were brought there they were dressed in like prison uniforms that sort of thing speaks to some sort of very regimented and well thought out plan that's consistent with this idea of the final solution, whereas taking people out and shooting them in the forest feels A, less novel and B more like haphazard in some way. I know what you mean. It doesn't have that sort of regimented, yeah, like planned feeling. But it obviously it's still extremely like fucked up. And yeah, the fact that, yeah, millions of people are killed in this way and it and it's not talked about. And it's sort of this weird thing where like and I don't know if we should go down this rabbit hole, but just again, this idea of, and of course this was even like before the Iron Curtain existed, but just this idea that like, as you go more Eastward and you could also make this argument, like as you go South into Africa or as you go South into Latin America, like things, history becomes more obscured in this way where like things are talked about less, the, the death programs that happened there, that's not a real phrase, but you know what I mean? Like our either unknown or talked about in less detail or not preserved in the same way that history around something like the camps that happened in for the most part in western europe and i guess also poland which i guess is also western europe sort of sort of but yeah i just i don't know if there's actually a crossover there or not but it kind of seems like we care less as things march eastward and south i mean that that's from the perspective of western
0: sort of mainstream knowledge and, and like it's a western perspective right i mean or are you saying that like i mean i i, I it seems like that's what you're saying not that like history is actually yeah, yeah, like that is what not i'm preserved saying. it's just not preserved in a way that people in the west know about on
1: a large scale right like there just seems to be and maybe this is also something that's internal to the like former soviet union states but there seems to be this kind of dismissal of the Eastern block of just being like, well, that was like a shit show for so long. And like, it's not valuable to understand and track what was happening because it's too complex. And just like, oh, people have been dying in waves for different reasons for like, you know, the past century or whatever. Well, I don't know. I mean, you. I remember you talking about this while you were doing your thesis. Like, I remember you specifically, I think, talking about this specific phenomenon of people being marched into the woods and shot, but just also other things, and this goes in, in line with how we've been talking about Russia in general, how things are just really obscured and you don't learn about them in the same way that you learn about traditional Western history.
0: Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, no, I, I remember this also just being like my general thing about living here no one knows anything you're like well no one knows anything about china either and i'm like but yeah Yeah." (laughs) (laughs) but people are white russia (laughs) sort of
1: Okay, so the, the sort of two things that I think that are most important to talk about or that like we, we kind of talked about this yesterday, but like the, there's two interesting things that I think that if we do some <laughs> intellectual backflips, we can figure out how they work with each other. The two components I'm sort of thinking about is like how religion exists amongst Soviet Jewry, okay, on the one hand. Uh, What is it? What's the phrase that Masha uses to describe it? But like identity formed an opposition. So that's like one chunk of thing. And then the other chunk of thing is is this idea that keeps popping up across events and histories that we've been talking about of this sort of like Soviet idealism in which a thing, whether it be a building or a autonomous region like Birobidzhan, is planned and then the execution either either fails or the thing is never even attempted to be executed at all and so trying to kind of there's something and and it's kind of good now that i think you read that slutsky poem and this like idea of absence because both of these things are kind of playing off that on the one hand you have soviet jews and there was like an absence of religion and an absence at the core of the their identity and then on the other hand you have this thing where like there's ideas but there's an absence of execution so i don't know how exactly we want to talk about those things i could real quick and i think it is actually a short clip this one play just like how masha talks about jewish identity
2: do you want me to play it real quick
0: sure sure yeah
2: what defined me as Jewish in the Soviet Union was things I couldn't do. And I'm not alone in this. I, uh, I just recently uh, read a whole uh, series of pieces that were submitted to an academic journal that's putting out a special issue on English language writers who who, ha- uh, who are former Soviet Jews. So I sort of... Um, I was writing a, a preface to this, to this issue and I found that a common thread to a lot of these interviews or a lot of these pr- first person pieces was something that I would probably have phrased similarly. Comments like this would pop up all the time. I was very proud of my Jewish identity because I knew I had to work 10 times as hard as anyone else. Or I was very proud of my Jewish identity because I kept getting called names. I was very proud of my Jewish identity because I got beaten up in grade school every day. That's something I could say, and it's true. I mean, it's, uh, it was pride as the opposite of shame, uh, not pride as a positive uh, assertion of something, because I wasn't sure what I had to assert. Uh, now, as some of you may know, the, there was a movement for Soviet Jewry in this country that was based on the idea that Soviet Jews needed to to be able to leave the Soviet Union in order to be able to practice their Judaism, in order to be free to be Jewish. And uh, that created a a series of thousands, tens of thousands, tragic misunderstandings as Soviet Jews leaving the Soviet Union, arriving in this country, were greeted by their, uh, their sponsors from the jewish communities in this country who wanted to help them be jewish and all we wanted to do was have the freedom to not be jewish
1: okay so there's there's that clip and then i want to read um i want to read something from the book that i think is just like another anecdote that highlights it but my kindle is being stupid hold on please hold beep my god,
0: Moomi's so fluffy. I must be feeding him enough. He's so healthy and fluff. Hello, I'm a fluff. Moomy, don't pee on my thesis. Thank you. He's like, this is shit. <laughs> this is total crap. <laughs> this, this reminds me of my litter box. <laughs>
1: All right, so Masha Gessen in in the final chapter of this book is in in Birobidzhan, and she's talking to this old man who's the last Yiddish-speaking person in Birobidzhan, and he's just been to the Birobidzhan synagogue, so I'm just going to read from this real quick. The Birobidzhan synagogue, however, is essentially an American import with a young Lubavitcher rabbi who probably knows nothing of the peculiar traditions of secular Soviet Jews. He wanted us to cover our heads, Beekerman grumbled as we walked the 15 yards to Freud. What does he think? He thinks I believe in God? I go to synagogue, he explained to me, apparently angry at how little I seem to understand, because I like to read and I like to study. But God? I cannot believe in God. Where was your God when the Jewish people were killed, when my parents and my five brothers and sisters were buried alive? You say he chose the Jewish people? He forsook the Jewish people. And so, yeah, that, that combined with, like, what Masha Gessen is talking about, which is, like, <laughs> a thousands of, of tragic interactions in which American Jews are aiming to help and Soviet Jews just want, like, a secure place to live where they can not be reminded of their, I guess, like, heritage or culture in some way. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't, I don't really have anything specific to say about it. I just feel like it relates in some way to this other kind of absence.
0: Oh my god, okay.
1: I don't know about the absence. I mean, I really do think, think the absence thing is really worth
0: talking about. Use your brain. Come on, cell. Pull through for us. I'm trying. But first of all, like, I don't think it's that Soviet Jews want to forget their heritage coming to the U.S. I think it's a matter of, like, when you when you were in the Soviet Union, you had a place in your passport that was marked nationality, and then there would be different things, and for Jews it would say Jew-ish or whatever
1: ish if you were a little bit jewish
0: (laughs) i mean guessing when she speaks during that clip is talking about her experience in the very late soviet union and i think like i mean it sounds like from what we get from her book the sort of history of of being jewish in the soviet union whatever that that meant that identity definitely fluctuated over time um at the point where she's talking about it where she defines it as like I define my Jewishness in terms of what I can't do, and she says that other people who uh, sort of are like recently published emigre writers said the same thing. They're talking about an experience in a certain time, but but I but I it's potentially something that was like fairly true throughout the Soviet Union that you wouldn't uh, wanna like how do I explain this? You wouldn't wanna necessarily emphasize your Jewishness. Um, Especially not the religious aspect, whether that's use of Hebrew or certain texts. That's not exactly. That's not encouraged, and at some points, that's like dangerous. At some points during the Soviet Union, so maybe in like the late '30s and under
1: Stalin. Yeah, I mean, wait. I just want to make a quick note about that. It like kind of makes sense. Like religion, uh, probably across the board, was eradicated. Kind of twofold, well. Maybe only for Jews was eradicated. twofold. fold. One is that like okay, there's these like. Stalin is, like, anti-religion for a set number of years, right? Is that a fair thing to say? The Soviet ideology is anti-religious. Atheistic. Okay, the Soviet ideology. So there's all this, like, de-churching, which I assume that, like, de-churching, you know, like, synagogues fall under that. But then there's this other component, which is kind of uh, exemplified in, in her talking with this with this old man that still lives in Birobiji, which is that Soviet Jews, like, looked at what had happened to them and decided that like god was false well that one jew said that (laughs) that one jew but i mean she's talking a lot about like how soviet jews tend to be secular
0: yeah i mean what what i'm trying to say is like i think like we have to point out is that like she's talking about a small group of people when she talks about dubnov when she talks about bergelson for example who goes to work for the soviet government He's a minority, and so are basically all the people who are, like, excited about Yiddish. Like, she she mentions that throughout the book. She's like, the people who are excited about, like, preserving Yiddish and preserving Jewish culture, secular culture um, in the Soviet Union. So, first of all, they're allowed to preserve it, like, at least the secular aspect. So that's sort of where that, like, secu- secular focus comes from. They're officially allowed to preserve it as to, uh, to a certain extent or during a certain time period, especially in the beginning of the Soviet Union. And so there's this sort of, like... There's a fervor around that, but anyone involved in that is a minority because most people are not particularly interested in that. And she 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 talks about that. She's like, these are like these scholars and poets who like, they really they all they were consumed by these thoughts of like how are they going to preserve their culture through language and like this is what they think about. They're writers and poets. Like they're not everyday people at all. So
1: what it was. So then what is she saying about like everyday Soviet Jews?
0: Well, I think I mean she says pretty explicitly like the ones who found themselves who lived in the Pale and 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 sort of um found themselves after the revolution in a destroyed economy like their 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 way of life as merchants was destroyed because private um enterprise was outlawed. It's like suddenly people have all these rights but they're extremely poor or like even poorer than they were before and sure a lot of people in the soviet union were really poor but i don't know what that like how that relates to the question of like secular versus religious but i think that kind of that that definitely relates to um the question of like why people would be seeking something or maybe potentially like thinking of like where to go uh, maybe they want to go to palestine maybe they want to go to bdb shit got very noticeably worse for a large number of Jews. Like, think about it. The Revolution, and then the World War Two, The World War II. World War Two. It's just like a decimation. I think that that's like a, a more important thing to talk about than
1: like... Whether or not they're religious?
0: Yeah, maybe it's not more important. I don't know. Like, I don't think necessarily... I mean, okay, sorry. Let me just say this a different way. Don't you think that like the the like Jews have been persecuted throughout history. I don't think that this one man that she interviews in Peter Rajan, who's like God has forsaken us is is representative because, like, okay, yeah, no, that's. That's, that's fair. That would be like saying, like, every time something bad happens to, the, to Jewish people, they just stop believing in God, and that would mean that they would stop believing in God a long time ago. Well, okay,
1: fair enough, but she's trying to talk specifically about the Soviet Jewish experience, and it is possible that Soviet Jews, because it was combined with this thing that was happening broadly across the Soviet Union, which I guess I'm just going to call, like, I don't, There's there must be a word for that. What is, like, the word for the ideology around dechurching? Mm, I don't know, like de-religification? Yeah, that, like, it's paired with that, right? And so, like, if you well, I don't know, maybe this is, like, inf- offensive in some way, but I'm just thinking, like, if you have that, where you're, like, being forced to not practice your religion, and then it's paired with, like, a series of extreme traumas, like, it might make sense that you would radically shift the way that... You-
0: yeah, and then I think, I mean, I, I I I don't know, I guess it's fine for us to, like, state the theory, just the, that theory, to me, feels really, like, impersonal, I guess, as theories are want to be, but, like, I just think, like, if anyone's going to sort of take away from this discussion of, like, Jewishness during the Soviet Union, I mean, I think it's important to note that, like, again, like, the experiences of the sort of main characters of Gessen's book are not, like, particularly typical in that the- these people, at the end of the day, were, like, fairly well-known writers and figures, and they were at the center of things.
1: Okay. Okay. Right. They're So they're famous. So they're not, like, representative of, like, the average... Russian plebe or whatever but they are I do think that they both in like the work that they produced and also in their the way that they live their lives are good like representations of a certain kind of I don't I don't know what to call it I want to call it like a Jewish thought pattern or something right I mean you're talking about what Gessen calls
0: this like flight instinct which is like questionable to me
1: Right. Yeah, it's also questionable to me. It, the flight instinct, though, but I'm like combining it with um, just like the actual behavior of these people and like the ways in which they spoke about the Jewish people and the places where they moved and their role. Like like you say, they both have these very symbolic deaths, you know? Yeah. So they're not representative of an average person, but they are representative of a specific time in Soviet Jewish history. Yeah, going back to the like whole like instinct for flight thing. Yes, I agree. It's like probably just feels a little racist. Why? Like because it's just saying like Jews know when to flee, but other people don't. It's yeah. It's just like a little bit. It's like a little bit
0: ridiculous. Honestly,
1: it's romantic. It's it's very romantic, but you could make the argument like, oh, Jews have been in diaspora and in these sorts of situations for centuries. And so there are certain cues they pick up on and certain skills they have that are like hereditary. And by hereditary, I mean, like passed on by their ancestors, not actually like genetic that allow them to understand when it's safe for them to move or not. The, the one thing that I did think was corny about this book and that I think is the kind of um, criticism that certain people specifically that one person on Twitter that I always reference has of Masha Gessen is that she and I'm, I'm saying this, not the person on Twitter. She kind of poses herself in this like Russian Jewish tradition of like fight or flight like having instincts herself she puts in that position and and in doing that she kind of draws comparison between like Putin and Stalin or Putin and whatever like the threat was at that time to Jewish people and then also draws the comparison between herself and people like um Bergelson or Dubnov you know and that's like a little it seems disingenuous to me to like talk about yourself as part of this tradition when the stakes for you are much much lower than they were for these people
0: yeah yeah well i mean yeah i i feel like the critique that the twitter person talks about is like um the twitter person like no one's ever gonna know who this is it doesn't matter i mean we could we could say her name it's not like she's well known really she says something about comparing guessing and like nadia and
1: which I don't really think that they're in the same vein, but I understand. Okay, wait, let me let me just scroll back and find it. Boop, boop. All right, I found it. Okay. So this tweet is by uh boy. All right, let me figure out what her last name is. She's on Twitter, Anna Kachian. K-H-A-C-H-I-Y-A-N. And she is part of, as far as I can tell, this certain like like leftist New wave group of people who are like centered in New York who just kind of like rightfully so in a lot of cases like shit on liberalism but but here's the tweet the whole Masha Gessen Nadia Talonko which I don't think is how you pronounce her last name but she's talking about the Pussy Riot person okay so the whole Masha Gessen Nadia industrial complex of Russian intellectuals who survived in quotes Putin but shill for liberalism is laughable she hates liberals. She hates liberals. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think she tends to be a bit harsher sometimes than than I would naturally be. But I I kind of do understand where she's coming from in that case. Like this positioning yourself as having survived Putin when you're a world famous author with a fair amount of money and East Coast prestige and East Coast prestige. I love how that's a thing. That is a thing. Yeah. It is, no. It totally is a thing. And and this this person on Twitter is somebody who would use public intellectual derogatorily and pointed at masha gesson mm-hmm. but we, we've kind of gone down the rabbit hole
0: i like i'm still frustrated by the like way we're portraying in really broad brush strokes this experience of being jewish during the soviet union and i think it's frustrate i think the frustration is present in for me in reading gesson's book as well because it's like she I mean, it's not her fault. She can't talk about everything. But doesn't it feel like she's kind of focusing on like this this particular narrative? So let me give the ca- counter narrative. Like, I just think that there are probably like a lot, like multiple multivalent experiences of being Jewish that like we're not even touching on right now in the Soviet Union. And and coming back to Slutsky, <laughs> like Slutsky, <laughs> Slutsky is a poet, also, right? He chooses not to write in Yiddish. And he chooses to write in Russian, though his writing, like a lot of his writing that I said in the beginning that is like references biblical themes, or it actually also can like engage with Jewishness on a, on a um, linguistic level and like a sound level. Sonic.
1: Wait, sorry. What do you mean by that? What does that mean?
0: It means that like, you know, like using sounds, um, that, or, like, using Russian words that maybe, like, sound Hebrew or, like... or yeah, yeah, sure. Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. But on, on multiple levels. So, like, it it could be an explicit reference to something biblical. And, like, again, a lot of his poetry that dealt with, let's just call it, like, Jewishness in general, whatever level it's on, those poems wouldn't be published until much later. And that's important. Like, it's important to note that, like, he decided, like, as a Soviet person to... Sort of officially live this life of like a decorated officer, who isn't emphasizing his the fact that he grew up you know hearing Yiddish on the street. He didn't. He wasn't sort of this like hero of Jewish culture the way like people who people like Bergelson who who led those like resurgences and revivals of Jewish culture in in right. all over the Soviet Union, not only in Bielobokan, were. And it's like an important choice because like it's basically like not targeting yourself. Um, as a particular nationality even though you might be targeted even though it says in your passport right at the same time i think a lot of for a lot of soviet people i think okay i don't know this is really general but like let's on the one hand it's like people maybe actually like wanted to believe in this sort of idealism of like building this secular society of communist ideals and values and stuff on the other hand again maybe like some people just like didn't want to deal with the potential well it depends on the time period but like the potential like dangers of being a certain nationality.
1: Well right, I mean you're just you're just referencing like what i assume are like m- maybe tens hundreds of thousands of jews that assimilated. Yeah. I mean to the
0: extent that that's possible because obviously like there is like a level on which like Gessen talks about i mean in the late Soviet Union of being like physically
1: identifiable.
0: Identifiable, yeah. And she talks about that in the book. Remember, like the wife, like the Bergelson. Bergelsons, yeah. Like wife looks very um, ethnically Ukrainian, yeah. So she can travel during a time when like Jews are uh, being persecuted, being attacked particularly. That was during this. I think that was still during the civil war. But yeah, no, okay. simulation, simulation. Uh, right? Sure.
1: But no, but I I understand what you're saying, and, and I think that that it's good for us to just like as usual you know push back against any sort of oversimplification and in this particular case you're talking about like she's presenting these two men and this like narrative around soviet jewishness a- by- and also incorporating herself as like the dominant experience of soviet jews when in reality there was as you say what you, where, where did you use multivalent yeah <laughs> i scholar today yeah <laughs> and yeah I agree with you and and I think that it's important for me to note, like I'm getting most of my so I would say like effectively all of my knowledge of Soviet Jews is now coming from this book and like the things I've watched of Masha Geshen. so like it might my- and my thesis and, and and of course your thesis did I read it I, m- I must have no read it. I highly doubt you read it what do you think you read it I think my dad's the only person who's ever read it <laughs> Yeah, it, like, and sometimes I fail to like question if this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, or not. so yeah, yeah. I think I think I understand what you're saying. Um, I don't know, like how how much I can, like, I think it's good that you have Slutsky as a counterexample, where he's also like an intellectual, but he's choosing to assimilate more than these people she's talking about.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't again, but it's a really it's a really important sort of like. Note that, like, for in his case, it's not assimilation, not doesn't mean like that you delete that, you know, that you like, right, that you reject it, that you reject your heritage. For him, like, it was about like continuing to write, but in a way, maybe that
1: wasn't going to be published or whatever. Do you think that for Slutsky, it was? a form of survival or it was just his natural inclination was that like, well, yeah, being Jewish is part of my identity but I also am like pro-Soviet and I'm a veteran, etc. cetera.
0: Uh, I don't know. I have no, I don't know. I can't say. Like, how can you say if it was that it's probably the latter but with also survival in mind i mean
1: yeah i mean i guess like i mean the way she's painting the experience of being a soviet jew is like this constant evaluation of if you're about to like be persecuted or about to be killed but the way that you're talking about slutsky is like oh he fought in the red army and then he was talked about as a as a war poet you know which is like right not about him like always escaping but it's, but it's, that's so, that's, okay, ah, back to the absence. That's, like,
0: so sort of typical that, like, Slutsky, for me, is a Jewish, uh, like, poet and figure because I studied him from that perspective, like, with that, with that particularly as, like, the center of what I was looking at in his work. I understand when I, when I ask just random people if they you know who Slutsky is if I mention it or something and, and they know him as like if they don't know him at all or they know him as a war poet, that that's that is a form of absence. It's like it's not the it's like he's not remembered for for his Jewishness because like he didn't he didn't partake in the sort of like uh mainstream Official channels of expressing your Jewishness. It's not that he didn't express it, but he didn't express it in the mainstream way, and that was the way that was recorded and remembered. There was the Yiddish people, and they did their, they had Yiddish theaters and they had Yiddish publications, and then they were persecuted. And I'm just saying that in a way, Gessen's book maps right onto that official history. You see? Yeah. No, I I understand. And it's like get uh, the thing. I think Gessen gets critiqued for in general, and I don't know, like this kind kinda of relates to the Twitter quote. I would say like the main critique is like a sort of tendency to oversimplify or like it's really not fair because I know she's a really prolific writer and and I haven't read most of her work. But remember we talked about this a while ago. It's like this feeling when you're reading something that she's she's writing right or saying, this feeling that it's it's very convincing and you really understand her position. Well, bias is obviously a bad word in journalism, but it' certainly feels like that you know what i
1: mean oh well she's definitely biased and she like i was listening to that interview that she just did with glenn greenwald and he like introduced her as an activist you know it's so, like oh wow she's definitely not an objective person but but yeah this is this is actually sort of an irony though i agree with you 100 percent, and it's combined with this fact that recently she's been talking about this talking about trump in this way that she says like happens across um nations and like is very typical of fascist leaders she's not calling trump a fascist leader but as you sort of explaining how this phenomenon happens which is like and it was also talked about in hypernormalization. but this idea that there's like a world that's extremely complex and then people are confused and then combined with like being poor and sad um and then a leader comes in and oversimplifies it and says look i'm going to fix everything it's very simple we all understand like it's fine um in some ways, that's what she does intellectually. Like she takes something like, okay, the Soviet Jewish narrative, and she uses Birobizhan to talk about it. And then somebody like me comes along, and I'm like, yeah, Oh, I understand this thing. And it's she somehow manages to make it still feel complex, while giving you the the solution.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, she does acknowledge other experiences in in that in that book definitely other experiences of being Jewish right I feel like she acknowledges them on the side here and there but yeah it's like at the end you come out with this sort of overarching narrative and you're like
1: okay and and she does that with other stuff too and and maybe that really is the only way to talk about like something complex is to make it a little more simple or to like find like, like nuggets of information and just like zero in on those which I think is what she does but like I guess we can't expect her to always be qualifying all of her statements with like well it's more complex than that but like my brain isn't good enough to talk about the complexities and then convey them to an audience in a way that they can understand like there has to be a certain simplification but I I don't know I I I'm glad you brought it up and I think in general it's good to rail against oversimplification even if like the response is that well we don't like it's okay for us to be like well we don't know what's going on because it's too hard for like our small little human brains to understand.
0: Yeah and like we can only like I, I have little tidbits here and there and like obviously like more time and research into this topic would give me more tidbits and more you know interviews with specific real people who lived well a lot of them are dead. But um, but, but isn't that the work of, like, a historian? And, and okay, so who is Masha Gessen? We didn't introduce her. <laughs> you made it this far. Now we're going to let you know. Her. So I feel like she's often described as a writer, a journalist. I mean, I would say a historian in a sense. Some things, like, I remember saying this to you, some topics, like whenever she talks about Putin, it's her responsibility to always something negative about him or like leave a very negative impression because it's almost like she recognizes that like people aren't really going to listen to the complexity of things but they are going to come away with a feeling and i need that feeling to be negative like i need you to think putin bad that's all i need and it's like in the case of putin i feel like she makes that it's almost like an ethical decision as like a journalist or yeah all the things that she is but then when you have a topic like birabijan
1: like why do you need to have a narrative I I don't want this to sound necessarily negative but like she's very prolific and she produces a lot of works that are published in short amount of time and I think that sort of form of working lends itself to less rigorous work right like if you write a book in a year or a year and a half I know this one took like five years so it's more than that but she also published other books in that time she's a journalist so she's been you know writing articles and stuff like it's not the same as being like a researcher at an institution where it's like okay here's some grant money and you get to meticulously pick apart this this subject for like however many years you want basically and like write research papers that like three people read like she's trying to write books that are that are like poppy enough that a large portion of the of you know, her audience reads them and they do, you know, like she's, she's definitely in that way, I understand why she f- falls into the public intellectual category along with people like Ta-Nehisi Coates or Malcolm Gladwell. And I think that this is the main critique of these people, which is that they have a certain like amount of celebrity combined with intellect combined with like maybe an oversimplification that allows them to be these, what's the word for it, like officials or experts on a given subject. And yet they are... Thought leaders? Yeah, they're being being thought leaders, but they're not doing their due diligence to be rigorous. And that's not necessarily their fault, right? Like, I can understand how that happens because the general public just isn't interested in reading really technical papers, and I don't think necessarily that they should be. But I think that we, in general, as a population, and this happens in science, also really struggle to translate complex research into digestible media
0: yeah i mean when you describe like this researcher and technical i mean you're also talking about a historian the work of a historian and maybe that's just what it is like at the end of the day like this is not the work of a historian this is the work of a journalist and a writer but that being said it's like this particular book could have been much longer and much more detailed and i think it's not about rigor so much as like well, I guess you can call that rigor. I don't know. But I think at the certain point, it's like kind of a matter of volume. Like when you write about the history of the Soviet Jews or the history of this land, but then you also write about the history of the whole people in the overall land, which is what happened in this book, and you write 140 pages, shit's going to be quick. I mean, it's not like... Right, right.
1: Well, I mean, I think rigor is is an okay word to use because I think that rigor, it it includes this like certain amount of patience that requires you to sit with a topic for a long time and really do your due diligence in like trying to represent it as accurately as possible and maybe she's failed to do that in this case but we still love her
0: okay i'm not saying that this is david remnick's fault but i've been reading lenin's tomb for years (laughs) literally um (laughs) that's an example of a journalist who like wrote this book I mean, among other things. But this particular book is called Lenin's Tomb, The Last Days of the Soviet Empire. And the book is over 500 pages long. It's super thorough. And I've been reading it for a long time. I don't think it's his fault. I think it's just because I keep stopping.
1: Every time I get a few pages in, he comes over and slaps it out of my hand. (laughs) See what I mean?
0: See what happens when you try to write a long book? No one will ever read it. But I feel like I also hate to just I hate to do this thing where like we're sitting around like these two blobs who have done nothing with their lives. We're like, <laughs> we're like, we're like, Masha like, Gessen mm. isn't rigorous enough. And it's just like <laughs> You're it's sitting the there with your thesis in front of you. <laughs> it's like, I'm really sorry if Masha Gessen ever listened to this for that kind of bullshit because because she's doing more good in the world by far than bad. Well yeah, and there's a lot of work that goes into these things that yeah. we're calling not rigorous. <laughs> but she should
1: have put more work into it is what we're saying. Yeah, no. I know, I know.
0: I mean, critiquing that overall approach of being like oversimplistic, I think that's important. And I think like we've covered that as sort of like like a more general thing, not necessarily relating to her long form research.
1: It is, but it is also like at what point do you just like stop going around being like that simplistic? that simplistic like okay then add to the complexity which i think yeah. is just like a good life practice in general
0: yeah but also to our to just that's why i read the wikipedia page <laughs> just, as a side note just to explain probably where we get this approach from i mean we spend like we spent like four years at a liberal arts college basically like critiquing scholars
1: <laughs> a lot. masturbating directly onto <laughs> scholars faces
0: <laughs> We're just like I just don't know that argument is rigorous enough. It's like you're 18. Put a cork in it. <laughs> <laughs> so to summarize the idea, it's like an aspect of Soviet ideology that involves like very future-looking, forward-looking thinking. Like, oh, we're going to build communism, we're, gonna, we're going to solve all these problems, we're going to live in a,
1: a place where, like... Every family has an apartment to themselves.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Everything looks and is better. So there's this, like, forward-looking sort of idealism and planning. And this what would happen is that, like, projects would be planned, like Biravijan. The project on the site of the Christ Savior Church... Where Pussy Riot performed um, Their famous performance That site, the, when the church was demolished uh, In the 30s They were planning to build A really epic Giant tower with Stalin on top of it That's like a pal- the Palace of the Soviets It's called And there were drawings for that and plans for that But it was never built And that, that building uh, That type of architecture it, it, it exists It's like part of a larger pattern um, Of these like sort of, like, fantastical things that were planned and never made. We're looking at this phenomenon, and we're, we're putting Birabijan also into it as this, like, um, idealistic homeland or something project that there was actually, like, there was lots of, like, propaganda for it, you know, whole campaigns, basically, trying to get people to go there and explaining how great it was, and then there was, like, this much less great reality, and then there was overall, like, the project was overall like a failed project. Masha says in the beginning of that lecture in the clip you played, like field experts went over there, checked out the scene, said it's not inhabitable, or like it's inhabitable, there are people there, but it's not a good place to (laughs) build this new republic. But then they went there anyway. Yeah. Like authorities decided, some authorities. And there is a sort of like detachment from or like a delay or detachment from reality in that, for sure.
1: Yeah, what was it? I mean, I think that happens on really small scales across the board, basically just like, oh, this is the thing we were talking about on the phone yesterday, kind of there's this like spectrum and on one side is a failure of imagination and a failure of imagination is oftentimes you use to describe like people unable to imagine that something really horrific is going to happen so something like the Holocaust um, but it but presumably it could be a failure of imagination of imagining how great things are going to be, I don't know, um, or a failure to imagine a good solution to a problem. Um, and then on the other side you have this like kind of ramp, rampant idealism that's exemplified in the Soviet Union where it's like your imagination is great, but you're unable to, like realize it because there's some disconnect between your imagination and the in the actual reality of the world
0: yeah or like people are encouraged to imagine it people you know are encouraged to make building plans and sketches and 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 even paid and and like there are projects built for all of this or like so much probably money and time was put into constructing um the campaigns around and and bringing people to bdb and literally constructing bdb building all the buildings and everything infrastructure and like naming the streets and everything yeah like so much effort so there's all this like almost all this like resources for for extra imaginary imaginative thinking um but then yeah there there ends up being sort of often like this like failure or or this break and You know, there's all those examples of, like, how inefficient the centralized, like, state-run economy was. Right, 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 right. Where, like, you know, you have an order placed and everything had to basically go through Moscow, technically. So that people are, you know, like, often, especially given the time period, like, technology and then the, like, vastness of the country, you have these sort of, like, you have a lot of gaps and delays where, like, someone's waiting for an order to do something or, like, that kind of stuff. Oh, God. That, like... I was going to say what keeps me up at night or something. It's like <laughs> thinking about, for example, like how wars are started because of like delayed messages and technology, the like issues of technology. Basically, someone like didn't get the telegram or whatever. That kills me.
1: Yeah, going back to that, like uh, the okay, so the the idealism, like something like Birobidzhan, paired with this, like specifically Soviet bureaucracy. It it kind of makes you feel like the. I mean, okay, I don't want to say like the idealism is is propaganda in itself but the fact that soviet leaders weren't able to extend that idealism to the mundane aspects of running a bureaucracy is like telling to me in some way just like this undervaluing of administration like why can't why can't that same idealism be be applied to like making a government run really effectively Because that's just, like, not compelling to people. I see
0: what, I kind of see what you're saying, but, like, wouldn't, like, doesn't the idea of, like, streamlining or, like, making a, like, a big organization work more efficiently, doesn't it require that you, like, have fewer jobs and stuff?
1: I don't know. That seems like too, yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, presumably solving the Jewish question is, like, is the same amount of complexity right like it they obviously weren't wary on about taking on complex issues but it was like there were certain things they were compelled by like building certain types of buildings or building these like beautiful um like reverential statues to their leaders or making these like individual autonomous regions for different nationalities but they were like less concerned in the idealism around the execution of its thing itself and i don't is that a specifically soviet thing i don't know i think maybe it's just more stark in the soviet case because there was this like extreme idealism around like certain forms of things yeah
0: i mean also think about all the like stuff that happened during like starting before the war like all the five-year plans basically just like the rapid industrialization that i mentioned during the khrushchevki right. episode just like You're turning a mostly agricultural society where like 80% of the population lives in villages into a urbanized, mostly urbanized, well, that's later, but also an industrial society. It's like really harsh. and That was not like a, I mean, that was not a smooth transition, but it is a huge, a huge amount actually did happen. So it's not just like building buildings and like statues and stuff. Also building factories. (laughs) like and making bread they they were in the process i mean it wasn't a very long experiment but i'm not saying like things would have been better if the soviet union had lasted longer i just mean like they're experimenting with yeah there was a lot of bureaucracy and a centralized government centralized economy yeah it's like suddenly the government is responsible for like figuring out like what clothes to produce like what food everyone needs it's just like it becomes like such a massive amount of responsibility and work that like before like private citizens could sort of determine to more of an extent i mean that's just like oh that's so insane to think about
1: let's let's yeah i i think obviously we should have like a full episode about this but is there anything that we can say specifically about bureau bajan in this phenomenon
0: yeah it's a weird caricature like place because, like in the end, like when when Gessen goes to visit in like the early two thousands, since you say there's like all these like statues of kind of like people living in like a shtetl life, right? Like, like these weird bronze statues of people like sitting on a bench and like, Live, living like as the those statues seem to be plopped out of a total they are plopped out of a totally different like lifestyle and climate than the one that they're in in bierabijan yeah and what does
1: what? Do, i believe you but I she's
0: saying know. that that's like that was like a new addition it was like a new addition of like another oh. sort of attempt to like re-envision yeah re-envision or be like see it's really a jewish place continued effort on a, a, like basically just a like a failed experiment. Can you can you give the stats now like the number of Jewish yeah. people or like at least publicly identifying Jewish people.
1: So, so prior to World War ii that there were like I I almost want to say the majority of the world's Jews were in the Soviet Union, like millions of Jewish people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then with Birobidzhan, the height number of Jewish people in Birobidzhan was like thirty thousand. So it never got that high. And like she says, like you know maybe ten thousand would move one year, and then five thousand would move back. But after World War ii a lot of people, a lot of Jews who tried to return to their homes in like Ukraine and Poland and stuff, those governments were just like, we can't deal with this because people have already moved into these like houses and we don't want to deal with the confrontation that would come from that. So they started paying to have people sent to Azerbaijan. So there was an influx after World War II. But in Russia today, there's a hundred and eighty six thousand Jewish people who identify as jewish so it's it's really small and then in birerbaijan there's there's two thousand Russia all over yeah wow. and then in birbaijan there there are two thousand people, and that's like half a percent of the population that's in Beerbaijan so it's it's more now just this like weird historical artifact that never actually came to fruition.
0: God, that is shocking. I mean, I guess it's true also that a lot of the a lot of the former Soviet Union where a lot of Jews lived, like the Pale, former Pale, um, is not part of the Russian Federation right now. So those people aren't being counted. But still, holy shit. I wanted you to yeah, and I wanted you to say the population so that I could just like really bask in like how sort of failed that project was. Um Yeah. I mean, yeah, it just seems like a really bizarre place and it seems like, yeah, um a Sort of horrible metaphor, in a way, mm. for like this unfulfilled dream pattern that we've been trying to talk about. What does she call it? The sad and absurd story of Peter Vijan, The subtitle: the sad and absurd story. Yeah. And it's like it was sort of like a project that was never meant to happen, and it didn't, and yet just like barreled through, but also didn't, and it
1: just ah right. uh, yeah. Well, and and thinking of it in the context of like. I don't know, like Israel and then Dubnov sort of talking about like how these are both like fantastical things or like that Zionism is fantastical. And I think that also Beard Bajan is fantastical and that it turned out it wasn't fantastical. It was just something about the peculiarities of the Soviet Union that they failed to be successful in the same way that Israel was successful. Well, this isn't even Propaganda Hour anymore, so we're going to... I just want to try it out. We don't need to, like, go in depth. I just want to read it, okay? Okay, what are you doing? Introduce it. All right, so, yeah, so... so we, We're going to try something a little different than Propaganda Hour, which is not an hour anyway. But on, on this episode, I'm... Basically, we're going to try this new thing where one of us will bring an article or some form of media and present it to the other person, and we'll talk about it briefly for no more than five minutes. I'm putting a five-minute cap on it, okay? Okay. So this is an article in New Republic by Jeet here. Um, and the title is called, Why the Anti-War Left Should Attack Putin Too. And then the subtitle is, His leftist apologists in the U.S. media aren't just blind to Russia's election meddling, but to Putin's xenophobia and homophobia. And I'm not going to give a lot of context for this, but I am just going to read some like sentences from it, okay? So here's, here's the first one I highlighted. While the left should be wary of American hawks eager to launch a new Cold War, there is no reason to t- entertain any illusion about Putin's foreign policy, which the left should oppose based on its own principles. Okay. The problem is that Russian, Russia's foreign policy threatens to export many of Putin's regime's, Putin regime's worst features, particularly xenophobia and homophobia. Okay. So let me, I want to find the part where he actually says this, what I think is kind of a ridiculous thing. Um,
0: Who is this asshole?
1: Oh, here here it is. Here it goes. All right. So rather like Trump's senior advisor, Steve Bannon, Putin seems to be pushing for an international alt-right, an informal alliance of right-wing parties held together by a shared xenophobia. Bannon is an ideologue, but Putin's motives are likely to be more cynical, a desire to sow chaos in the governments that have clashed with Russia over its western border. Regardless, Trump and Bannon have found common cause in a policy that should be opposed by anyone who wants to defend the rights of immigrants and ethnic minorities. Okay, so th- this is kind of the conclusion of the article. Additionally, the U.S. could also push for greater security in vote counting. Even though the consensus is that last year's vote hacking attempts were unsuccessful, those campaigns have created uncertainty about the election process. The larger argument the left should make is that Russian interference was enabled by flaws in the American political system that allowed the collusion to take place. As the scandal unfolds, Trump's murky financial ties to Russia are coming to the fore, showing the need. Need for laws requiring presidential candidates to disclose their financial history. And Putin's formation of an international alt-right surely calls for American political organizations, including the Democratic Party, to forge alliances with groups in Europe, Russia, and elsewhere that are fighting for progressive politics. Oh
0: my god. There.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um
0: okay, you have the timer on to boil an egg in five minutes. Yeah, boil an egg this is the kind of thing where like this idea has some validity but when you put it in that kind of ridiculous like extreme form it just makes me want to disagree with it
1: it's it's so stupid to like introduce this idea of putin forming an alt-right it's like an alt the alt-right is like a specifically american phenomenon like we're talking about a specific brand of like young disaffected white guy who like goes on the internet and trolls people and he's using it to like talk about Putin as if he's like forming an army of pepes it's the whole thing is it's so absurd he referenced specifically Glenn Greenwald in this in this article like he's using Glenn Greenwald as the representation of like leftists who should be Killed like against Trump also. (laughs) No. That should be against Trump also because Trump or a Putin, excuse me, because Putin is uh, like there there's this weird conversation going on amongst people on the left. There's two two things I've seen that are ridiculous. One is that Putin exploited Americans' racism in order to Putin, not Trump, Putin exploited americans racism to win to clinch the election for trump and recently with so i don't know if you're following american politics but yesterday yesterday trump announced that transgender people weren't going to be allowed to serve in the military anymore oh and a lot yeah that's like a whole different topic that we aren't going to talk about because it's not russia related but <laughs> one of the re- one of the like mainstream responses that i saw a lot of just like by looking at People on Twitter is like, <laughs> wait, I just want to find one of them because it's so ridiculous. Hold on. Oh, okay, here we go. So this person who I I her name is Molly McHugh. I think she's a she's a journalist. She says, "Just a reminder that the Kremlin's favorite way to mobilize radicalized support base is gay hate." What? What? And then a bunch of people are just like, "Yes." putin has taught the republican party how to be anti-lgbtq what the fuck is going on? before that they never used it to politicize oh anything oh i god. know it's really oh my god. people are
0: losing their shit oh my god it's like it's like as though there wasn't like deep-seated homophobia in our, the, for the hundreds of years that our country has existed What the actual fuck <laughs> no putin has taught oh us how God. to be not only is that so uh. ridiculous because like gay and transgender that's also ridiculous but like i mm, mean conflating but what like
1: yeah Ah, uh, oh uh, that's so hilarious <laughs> Well one of the points that Masha Gessen makes in that interview with Glenn Greenwald is like there is some amount of comfort in believing the Russia story because like Trump is obviously a shit show and not at the helm of any bus or if he is that it's like really scary but Putin is like this devilish mastermind who's in control so like at the very least whether evil or not somebody is in control and so like now it's just like all the bad things that Trump does well he could have The motive from we can't read his motives, which I think is true. It's like sometimes very hard to understand what he's doing. So, like, let's just pretend that like Putin is tutoring him in one-on-one sessions on how to like be homophobic instead of. Oh my god! I mean, because
0: there, what I said in the beginning, like the elements of truth, like like how um, the sort of issue of immigration and and race and ethnicity in Russia under Putin there there are issues there yeah and but but it's certainly not something that is influencing like it's just it's weird to to think that like this whole anti-immigration like wave that's happening um in in like Europe and the US why would you think that like Putin had masterminded that like that's like just so stupid like i just I can't believe that. I mean, it also, it's this part of what we talked about before, this, like, supervillain status that people give Putin where he's, like, this, <clears throat> yeah, he's, a, he's because he's in control, maybe it's easier to give him the status, but it's, like, as though he's this, like, literal mastermind. I mean, it's just, I it yeah. really, it's just, that is a very Cold War image of, like, these superhuman, what we don't understand who they are, people far away who are, like, controlling us. That is, like, very Cold War to
1: head on down to the beach today Update with your body
0: I, I realized the past few episodes that I'm like the only one who gives the body updates.
1: You always say that and that's not true.
0: It feels like the past couple ones they listened to, I'm like, I give it and you're like, okay, I get it. Okay. Anyway, bye. Episode's (laughs)
1: over. Who shared the body update on the last one? You talked about the dancing thing. I said I had strep throat on the one. No, you didn't. You didn't say you had strep throat. You edited that shit out.
0: <laughs> but I said it in the moment. Sure, but it was just in the edited version. It was just me complaining about my body aching, and we are like, "My muscles hurt." And you're like, "Okay, folks, that's it for the." Sh- <laughs> 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 I was gonna do a product
1: um
2: plug.
0: Oh God, shill. Yeah, but it's oh not God. a shill for anyone who will ever know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like so a it's brand, a non-transactional shill. Yeah, well, like, okay. yeah, it's not transactional.
0: I've just been using this. I was just thinking about it because I have it here on my table. Um, <clears throat> I enjoy going into pharmacies and, like, I don't. I think it's yeah. I think it's a European thing. You know, like how they'll be and Russian thing. They'll be like pharmacies with like a bunch of nice products. You know what I'm talking about? It's like not like CVS at all.
1: I feel like we saw that in uh, Turkey
0: yeah i think it exists in a lot of places definitely in europe i guess yeah in turkey we probably saw it too anyway i just like wandering into them and occasionally buying totally random shit that i don't need and i did that with this it's like a tiny little spray it's like a aerosol can little aerosol spray can and it has thermal spring water in it and you're just supposed to spray on your face or wherever you want every so often
1: what is it
0: thermal spring water
1: Oh my god, you are such a sucker.
0: <laughs> I know, but I love this kind of stuff. Okay, so it's about <laughs> it's supposed to like calm your skin like if, you know, if it like as my skin tends to get sort of I don't know, red or whatever and it like cools it off and calms it down. I don't know if it does anything else, but it says it's like soothing and anti-irritating. And like okay. you can spray it on any part of your body. Like I've been spraying my face every so often, but it's so nice cuz I'll, like I'll be at the office and I'll just like I'll just like go into the bathroom and like spray my face with this, and it's like washing your face. Like you get a little like reburst.
1: Oh, that's nice.
0: And then, yeah. but you don't need to like dry it, it just absorbs and you glisten. Yeah. So, my body update is that sometimes I buy random products for my body. Smith?
1: Um, I just finished having my period yesterday, and this was the first period where I was like, okay, I'm going to use the Diva Cup, and I'm going to commit to it even if there's problems, you know, because I would just, like, I would try, and then it wouldn't go so well, and I would give up. Plus, Thinx, it went right? It went okay. No, not, I'm not, no, no. It's way too hot to be wearing things right now. I can't have, like, that much polar fleece on my vagina. But yeah, basically with the Diva Cup, like, the twisting part is key, and I still struggle with it also it's like doesn't really work for like the beginning and end times you know when you're just like dribbling a little bit you don't like need a full cup you just need like a sponge that like everything up
0: yeah it doesn't really work for the not heavy flow times i like to think if we have any male listeners that they're all or non-period no yeah male (laughs) that they're all like just taking their headphones off and slowly walking away (laughs) or quickly um quickly no
1: no, get me away from the period uh, <laughs> I feel like people are pretty good about periods these days. Anybody that would be listening to us,
0: yeah, yeah, I know. My vagina's bloody. It's too bad about the Diva Cup not having a better like beginning and end stage. I mean, you know me and the Diva Cup; we don't get along. But but you pretended like for a long time that you did. That's why I don't really trust your opinion on period. That's products. not even true, though. I mean, I didn't pretend for a long time. I pretended for probably a year, years, really. It was college, again. I don't know. (laughs) I don't trust myself. (laughs) I was focused on academics.
1: Okay. um...
0: Also, you're the only person I know ever in the world who would call the material that is touching your vagina on things polar fleece. And there's just no way that that is called or ever should be called polar
1: fleece. And it's confusing. Polar fleece is like a fuzzy, warm... It is fuzzy, Lily. Yes. All those things. It's closer to polar fleece than any other material. It feels like cotton. Exactly like cotton. <laughs> no. This is crazy. No. It has more of a texture than cotton. It has the texture of like a stuffed animal. On the inside? The, what? That yes. that little that little layer that
0: it feels very much like cotton to me. I don't know. I just feel like this is one of those things where, that you do sometimes where you just like, maybe it's because you're like from the West Coast. Oh <laughs> you God. randomly like don't understand materials. Like, this is like... <laughs> such a west coast thing west coast people don't understand anything no um like for example like you don't
1: know the difference between tights and leggings like that is like a basic okay (laughs) that is confusing Ah! and i think i understand uh, if there was like a law that said like okay one of them always has feet and one of them never has feet, then it would be more clear. Also with the like leggings tights revolution that has happened, the, it's a spectrum now. It's not so clear cut. Okay? okay. It might be a
0: spectrum, but still it's not just about legs, not legs because it's about a thickness and like a texture and everything. Feet, <laughs> not
1: feet, not legs, <laughs> Almost not like, legs. Do you think that tights are made out of fleece? <laughs> no, I think that tights are made out of like some see-through nylon. All right. Right? Good. Sort of. So I, I really smart. it's like it's
0: like my brother being colorblind and I like point to colors and I'm like, what color is this? I like wanna play a game where I like lay out a couple of things for you, pieces of clothing. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Smith, yeah. tell me what this oh my is I got paid
2: today. Trust me when I say nothing's in my way.
1: Alright, that's the episode. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's in Russia. You can go to our website, she'sinrussia.com, in Russia.com, and sign up for our newsletter and you can also call in and leave us a voice message at 347-292-7126 uh, Nobody's going to pick up the phone so you don't have to worry about
2: talking to a real person and we will see you next week. Boop, boop, beep.